Now that Absalom has gathered his rebellious army, he begins to set himself up as the tyrant, lawgiver, judge, and king. This is the 31st sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading for this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 15, one verse, only the first verse. 2 Samuel 15, verse 1. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, as God recounts for us the revolt of Absalom, the prophet writes this, And it came to pass after this, that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses, and fifty men to run before him. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 13, the first five verses, one through five. But the same spirit, the Apostle Paul says this, In relation to government, he says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers ought not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, he must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now, after forcing Joab to convince David to restore him out of exile, Absalom begins to unleash his plan to take the kingdom for himself. So after forcing Joab to convince David to restore him out of exile... Absalom begins his push to unleash his plan to take the kingdom from David for himself. And that's what we read in verse verse 1. It came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses, and notice, 50 men to run before him. Here is a man with tremendous ambition to the point of conspiring against the legitimate king, which appears to be, of course, his own father. David, however, was unmistakably called by God through Samuel as the legitimate king. It was God's legitimate king that he would raise for himself. In fact, David would represent the kingdom of God. He would even be a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite all of his faults and and all of his mistakes, David was God's man. He was God's legitimate king. We see here also that Absalom is a man not only bent on rebellion, but he has a following. He has raised for himself an incredible following. By this time, Absalom had amassed a considerably large army for himself with chariots and horses and and 50 men to run before him, and this was a very formidable threat. Now, Absalom's rebellion was twofold. On the one hand, he is revolting against his own father, and this could very well result in the assassination of his father if the revolution became impassioned enough to turn violent. 
David could have been or could be assassinated. On the other hand, Absalom was conspiring against God's man, his father, David, who was God's man, who was placed upon the throne legitimately. And since David was God's chosen, to rebel against God's chosen man was a revolt against God himself. Not just against David, not just against his father, not just against the legitimate king, but this was a revolt against God. It was poking the finger in God's eye. All of this, this entire conspiracy, was a direct consequence of sin, sadly beginning with David's inability to control his own lust. And it was initially brought, if you remember, about by David's failure to follow through with his duties as a king, not to go to war when it was the time to go to war. He was not going to war. It was the season for the king to be at war and he decided not to go to war. And that's a lesson for each and every one of us. When it is time to fight God's battles, we must fight. Perhaps, however, the downward decay of David's resolve began when he violated God's law by taking to himself many wives. This was a direct result of his lust, a violation of God's law as it pertained to kings. Whenever David's actual decline actually began... Destroyed it would bring down David's entire family and the entire honor of the kingdom was when David took Bathsheba, fathered a child by her, and then tried to cover it up by murdering her husband Uriah. It was at that moment when God's prophetic decree sealed David's future, cursing him as Nathan the prophet came to declare that David at this point, going forward, would be miserable. And as predicted, Bathsheba's child dies. Amnon viciously assaults Tamar. David fails to act justly. Absalom assassinates Amnon two years later in a vengeful act of execution, premeditated murder, and is now going to launch, at this point, in chapter 15, a campaign to overthrow the king, taking the kingdom for himself. This may not have been Absalom's actual intention initially before Amnon's crime. In fact, if David had perhaps, and I only say perhaps, perhaps if David had executed a just judgment against Amnon or vindicated Tamar's shame, Absalom may never had conspired to kill his brother or conspire against the king. But it was David's refusal to bring about justice against Amnon that Absalom was furious over. In fact, it was at that point where Absalom may have even thought that his father no longer was able to justly rule the kingdom and that he could do a better job. And so he's setting himself up as a righteous judge in behalf of the people of God. He believed that he was the people's man. Now, to be fair against David... He did have an issue with exacting justice upon those whom he was familiar with. If you remember, when Joab murdered Abner in cold blood through a calculated murderous conspiracy, David did nothing because Joab was David's cousin. How could he execute his cousin, his own war chief? Amnon was his son. How could he execute his son? So he had this dilemma. This was David's failure. At these moments, he was too soft when it came to exacting justice. And while he may not have had to execute these men, the problem was he did nothing. There was not even a rebuke. There was no punishment whatsoever. The victims were left without any closure. And it was this that Absalom wanted to remedy. His problem, however, 
was he chose the wrong approach. He chose revolution and revolt against a legitimate ruler. So that brings us to a question. If a revolt against a legitimate ruler is a violation against God's law, as the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 13, is a revolt or a defiance against an illegitimate ruler permissible? Can we biblically, legitimately defy or revolt against an illegitimate ruler? See, that's the question. And then, of course, another question is, how do we do that? What is the righteous way to do that? Now, the only way to answer that, of course, to begin with, is to define what an illegitimate ruler is. How do we know what is an illegitimate ruler? Absalom surely couldn't understand that because David was an legitimate ruler. He wasn't illegitimate. He just made some mistakes. So the revolt of Absalom was wrong. It was unbiblical. It was ungodly. But what defines a ruler as illegitimate as it concerns his office? Well, the only way to figure that out is to define what a legitimate ruler is. If we can define what a legitimate ruler is, we can understand what an illegitimate ruler is. The Apostle Paul defines the office of a legitimate civil magistrate as a minister of God for good. And that good is defined by Scripture. So he is to be a minister of God for the upholding of that which is righteous, just, and good. Notice, verse 4, Romans 13, For he is the minister of God to thee for good. The two things stand out in this description. Firstly, obviously, this civil magistrate is a minister of God. That places him under the authority and the sovereignty of God and his law. He is not above God. He is not above God's law. He is a minister of God. He is under God. The word used to describe this ruler as a minister is the word which means a servant. He is a minister. He is a servant. Someone who waits on on a master. Note, he is not the master. He is not the lawgiver. He is not the king. But rather he waits upon the master as one who is under authority. Second, He must uphold the good, which is defined by the word of God, by God's law. In other words, whenever a ruler, whenever a magistrate, as a servant of God, violates the dictates of God, who is the ruler's master, he then illegitimizes his office. If this practice becomes the norm, or if that ruler begins to exchange evil for good, then that man is no longer to be regarded as a minister of God, but rather a minister of wickedness. Now we do give way for mistakes, but when there's a consistency, when there is a pattern of upholding evil and wickedness and squashing that which is good, we can then clearly, without any apology, declare that magistrate illegitimate. Moreover, if that minister becomes tyrannical, if that magistrate becomes tyrannical, as Saul became tyrannical during his reign, then his illegitimacy proves beyond the shadow of any doubt that he has become an enemy of God, an enemy of the people, and the enemy of the nation as a whole. 
So what Romans 13 is telling us is that the law of God cannot be divorced from the political sphere. You cannot have the law of God over here and man's law over there and never the twain meets. Romans 13 is all about how to structure the civil realm of men and nations. Consider the words of the Apostle Peter as he declares the realm as he declares the realm of Christ's dominion. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 32 and following through verse 36. This Jesus, Peter is speaking, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Notice, both Lord and Christ. Now the titles Lord and Christ refer to the office of Jesus as the civil ruler, Lord, and the spiritual ruler, Christ, Messiah, who is the dominion judge of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Now Peter here, at this point in Acts chapter 2, is perhaps alluding to Isaiah 33, verse 22, where God declares that he is lawgiver, judge, and king. But he is the divine lawgiver, the divine judge, the divine king, and nothing can supersede his power. Nothing is above him. Not the minister of a nation, not the minister of the world, but God is above all. Paul makes reference to Christ's supremacy. And that's something that the church needs to reflect upon. The supremacy of the Christ over every realm of human existence, over every institution of human existence. The supremacy of Christ. So Paul is making reference to Christ's supremacy, his supreme authority in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. What does he want us to be enlightened to? To the fact that Christ is the supreme authority. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the workings of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Notice the next verse. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now notice the phrase, principality and powers. That phrase refers to civil rulers. The Greek word used here for principalities is actually the word arche, which literally means magistrates. Not talking about angels, 
I'm talking about spiritual beings, I'm talking about real people. Far above all magistrates, the Greek word for powers refers to human authority. The Greek word used for dominion is the word which means government. So the way you read this is far above all magistrates, all of their human authority and might and their governments, dominions, what they rule over. So Christ's supremacy is above all magistrates. When Paul says that Christ has been placed above these powers to the church, he is pointing to the fact that he is the sovereign minister over all things, and as the the sovereign minister of God over all temporal and heavenly realms, Christ will execute justice and righteousness since he will rightly divide evil from good for the good of his church. And he has placed in his earthly magistrates the responsibility and will hold them accountable to supporting the good and destroying the evil. To put it in the way that Paul puts it, Christ will not be a terror to good works, but to the evil, because he is under the authority of God, who is sovereign, he is the minister of God, to thee, the church, and to the people, and to the nation, for good. Therefore, all civil rulers, from dog catcher to the president to the king of Saudi Arabia, all civil rulers, as ministers of God, are to be patterning themselves after the Lord Jesus Christ, doing that which is good. And when they do not, they run the risk of delegitimizing their office. Now, Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza, He had to deal with this too. And notice what he says. There is no other will than that of God alone, which is eternal and unchanging, the rule of all justice and righteousness. He is therefore the only one we are obligated to obey without any exception. And concerning obedience due to rulers, if they were always the mouth of God to command, it could also be said without exception that they should be obeyed as unquestionably as God. But, since the complete opposite is often the case, this condition must be established. We must obey them provided they do not command acts of wickedness or things contrary to the Christian religion. Piety and love are the limits of obedience due to magistrates. What Christendom needs is a well-thought-out theology of the state so that it can properly navigate the history that it has been born into. I don't believe that the Church of Jesus Christ has an accurate theology of the state. How do we deal with the state when they delegitimize themselves? As theologian R.J. Rushdoony stated, quote, A Christian theology of the state must challenge the state's claim of sovereignty. Only Jesus is Lord and sovereign. And the state makes a Moloch, an idol, a wicked idol, of itself when it claims sovereignty. The church must be roused out of its polytheism and surrender. The crown rights of Christ the King must be proclaimed. Our dear friend and colleague, Dr. Robert Fugate, sets forth a number of biblical responses for God-endorsed civil disobedience. 
drawing from Acts 5.29, where Peter gives the rule, we ought to obey God rather than men. Not only are Christians to recognize when tyranny is afoot, and not only should Christians obey God rather than man when they proclaim wickedness, but I would include all those created in his image. Every human being on the face of the earth needs to be able to identify, needs to be able to identify tyranny and then resist it. But notice what Dr. Fugate posits. He says, as far as setting forth a number of biblical responses for our civil disobedience, he says, firstly, they are prohibited from doing what God has commanded. When you are prohibited from doing what God has commanded, you are to resist. So when they say close the church, God has commanded for the assembling of the saints. You ought to resist. Moses and Aaron, they called down God's curses upon Pharaoh. They actually called down the judgment of God upon Pharaoh because he had enslaved them and forbid them to do what God has called them to do, mainly to worship and freely apart from their bondage. And remember, if you, if you, if you see carefully and read carefully what Pharaoh was saying is, you can go out and worship, but you gotta come back in three days. No, we wanna be free totally. We need to begin a concentrated effort, a concerted effort to pray against those, those rulers that want to keep the people of God enslaved through propaganda control, taxes, restrictions, and ungodly mandates, all of which seek to demoralize and curtail the declaration of the gospel and the implementation of God's law. It's called imprecatory prayers. Second, resistance is to be practiced when we are commanded to do something that God has forbidden. You're not going to do something God has forbidden. This means we cannot give our consent to anything that is evil or sinful. The midwives, they were commanded to kill the children. By law, it was a statute, it was an ordinance, it was a law. Pharaoh said, that's it. I want you to kill the kids. And they did not. They refused to do what the state told them to do. And they were commended. Even Jonathan, the king's son, refused his father's commandment to kill David. Because Jonathan knew it was wrong. So he rebelled against a clear and direct commandment of the state, King Saul. Even King Saul's army refused to kill the priests at Nob when commanded by the king. Mordecai, too, refused to pay homage to Haman, who was the highest court official, as the king had ordered. He refused. Even the wise men from the east disobeyed Herod's orders to return with the location of the Christ child. Thirdly, when defending the church's jurisdiction, we are to resist. When King Artaxerxes forbade the temple to be built, Haggai and Zechariah told Zerubbabel, the governor of the Jews, to rebel against the king's orders. Peter and John also showed resolve against obeying the orders of the civil magistrates. Azariah the priest, who was a clergyman, he rebuked King Uzziah for usurping the authority that God had given him as a minister under Christ's oversight. We have over and over and over, example after example, case study after case study, of defying tyrants. Number four, resistance is also warranted whenever the family's jurisdiction is threatened. The sad situation that the Christian community faces today 
is that they have already relinquished their family jurisdictional rights by transferring their legitimate oversight to the, the illegitimate oversight of the government indoctrination system of the government schools. And this is why I am so insistent that the government school system, to have your children there as a professing Christian and having your children who are covenant children go to these schools is a violation of God's law. Clear and steadfast in the scriptures, don't do it. But what parents don't understand is that once they register their children in a government school, they have entered in a voluntary agreement which is called, in Latin, in loco parentis. In loco parentis is translated as in the place of parents. That's what you've done. You have given the school your right to be their parent. And that was very clear when McCullough said, you parents have no rights over your children. It's the school. In loca parentis is a legal doctrine describing a relationship similar to that of a parent to a child. It refers to an individual who assumes parental status and responsibilities for another individual, usually a young person, without formally adopting that person, end quote. And that quote is from the Dictionary of Law. By far the most common usage of in loco parentis relates to teachers and students. You voluntarily have, by registering your child, have given your child over to an ungodly system. And you wonder why God is angry with the church. Number five, resistance must be practiced whenever a civil ruler prohibits a person from exercising their God-given calling. For example, a minister cannot be prohibited from exercising his duty to minister and preach the gospel. But this can also include the God-given calling to educate children as fathers and mothers. The state has no business compelling you to relinquish your God-given covenant calling in the education of your children and if they seek to do that, if they say you must do that, you must resist. Of course, there may be many times when an individual is forced to flee tyrannical persecution. We left New York. We thought about Pennsylvania, but their homeschool laws were horrible, as New York's. We came further south. If we need to go elsewhere, we'll go elsewhere. Because that sometimes is a possibility. David fled from Saul and evaded capture on many occasions. Joseph was told by God to flee Egypt to save the Christ child from Herod's wrath. During the days of the Lord, it was illegal to possess swords by the Roman government. According to the historian Philo, a contemporary of Jesus and the apostles, during the time of the Roman Empire, the Romans considered the possession of weapons a crime, punishable by death. And yet, Peter had a sword. And at one point, he was even told by Christ to take two swords. The Reverend Dr. Philip Kaiser explains, he says, despite it being illegal for private citizens to possess swords in Israel due to Roman fears of assassinations, Jesus allowed two of his disciples to carry those illegally owned swords. This was a clear case of civil disobedience. And it speaks directly to the example of people rounding up guns. The rate of self-defense from common criminals is so fundamental and so inalienable that no order to withhold such protection is lawful and disobedience to such a directive is clearly authorized by Jesus. 
But as soon as Peter used one of those swords to attack the civil magistrate, Jesus forbade such revolution. Though they could lawfully own such illegal weapons and hide such weapons from the civil officers, they could not lawfully use those weapons against the civil officers. Of course, unless they were defending themselves. So, and this is Dr. Philip Kaiser's assessment. I'll comment on this in a moment. He continues, so, if officers started collecting all guns, it would be perfectly biblical to hide such weapons, but it would not be biblical to shoot the officers to prevent them from confiscating the weapons, since that would be murder. Now, although Dr. Kaiser, who I I, I think he's an incredible theologian, a, a colleague of mine who I trust very much, although Reverend Kaiser gives the example where David obtains weapons yet refuses to use them against King Saul. I'm not sure that is what the response that we would have to take if Christians had to face such a challenge. I'm not sure how that would work out. I think the founders of America would also interpret and apply David's situation a bit differently since they saw their act of armed rebellion and revolution as part of a biblical response of interposition. So I'm afraid that if the state ever tried to forcibly confiscate our means of self-defense, it would, it might, signal a time of active revolution, much like in the days of the judges. Today, government has also taken aim at food production. The state has unlawfully forbidden the individual production of milk and a number of other privately produced foods which is not regulated by the state. And yet it is God's commandment that we provide nourishment for our families. Gideon hid grain behind the barn from the tyrannical oppression of the Amalekites. David also broke the law by eating the showbread. The state also becomes despotic in other ways as well. And very tyrannical, especially when it comes to controlling the monetary supply and the means of trade. When the authorities proclaimed that it was unlawful to buy and sell without their authorization in Revelation 13, the 144,000 resisted that prohibition. When the state commands something that is ungodly, we are to resist. Dr. Kaiser comments again, he says, when Zimbabwe prohibited the use of foreign currencies or the means of exchange other than their dollar, which was totally destroyed, which was being inflated by massive amounts each day, any who obeyed that law ended up starving. It would be imperative to disobey that law in order to feed your family. So that's a law you would disobey. The United States government's confiscation of gold was an attempt to control the populace in order to bring them under the dominion of the state. Now because we're so historically anemic, we're historically anemic and ignorant of our history. We don't remember those days because we haven't read about them. We may not have been alive during those days. I certainly wasn't. But by May 1st of 1933, all Americans were required, they were mandated by the government to turn in their gold. They had to turn in their gold to the Federal Reserve in return for $20.67 of paper money per troy ounce. Now back then, $20 was more than $20 today, to be sure. But they still had to trade in hard, real gold currency for inflatable paper. Americans who did not turn in their gold were subject to arrest on criminal charges. And they faced up to 10 years in federal prison. By 1954, 
things started to change. And on December 31st, 1974, with Executive Order 11825, President Gerald Ford repealed the executive order that Roosevelt used to call in the gold in 1933. Then on December 17th in 1985, President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Gold Bullion Coin Act, which allowed the U.S. Mint to produce gold coins from newly minted domestic sources. The question, of course, is could the confiscation of gold happen again? And the answer is absolutely yes, because the government functions arbitrarily at a whim. A government can call in anything they want under the threat of an emergency, real or manufactured crisis. It's called Government by Emergency. And there's a great book that you can buy. It's called Government by Emergency. In the case of eminent domain, the government doesn't even need to give a reason for the confiscation of an individual's property. This is due to the fact that they have no absolute standard of law. Law is what they want it to be. It's arbitrary what they need it to be at the time they want it to be that way in order to garner more and more power and control over the citizenry. They want to consolidate power. That's the point. And this is why it is so dreadfully urgent that we return to a righteous standard of law in order to avoid a systemic collapse of our nation. Jurist Sir William Blackstone played a leading role in the establishment of the English common law, completing the work of King Alfred's work on the law of Moses. Not as biblically sound as I would like it to be, but he had some great things to say. His commentaries set the stage for the jurisprudence of the founders. And despite being a natural law theorist, Blackstone appealed to the law of God as the only valid standard for justice. And he wrote this, quote, the laws laid down by God are the eternal, immutable laws of good and evil. This law, dictated by God himself, is of course superior in obligation to any other. It is binding over all the globe, in all countries, and at all times. No human laws are of any validity if contrary to this. What happened? You've got all these lawyer types in Congress all required to read Sir William Blackstone. And yet, disavowing it totally by their actions. According to Blackstone's thoughts, in 1860, John Wingate Thornton declared this, quote, We may safely assert these two things in general without undermining government. One is that no civil ruler are to be obeyed when they enjoin things that are inconsistent with the commands of God. This is 1860 now. All such disobedience is lawful and glorious. All commands running counter to the declared will of the supreme legislator of heaven and earth are null and void, and therefore disobedience to them is a duty, not a crime. Now that's one of the reasons why they want to erase your history. They don't want you to read these things. They don't want you to know the history that really structured Christendom and Western civilization and, in our case, the American foundation. At issue, however, in the case of Absalom, David was not an illegitimate ruler. He was God's man, despite his faults. He may have made some mistakes, which, by the way, he paid dearly for, but he was still God's appointed king. He most certainly was not a tyrant like Saul, 
Absalom's conspiracy was ill-founded and not biblically sanctioned. The problem with Absalom was he really didn't care. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. In his warped mind, he thought that he could right the injustices through whatever means he saw fit. But there may have been another reason, in addition to his quest for power, why Absalom was so insistent that Job grant him an audience with the king at that time. Remember, he was very insistent. At this point in the historical narrative, we don't read about this, but we do know that Solomon is alive. He's not mentioned in the narrative. He is living in Jerusalem, most likely in the court of the king with his mother Bathsheba. So could it be that in the back of of Absalom's mind that he feared that if he didn't make his move then and there to take the throne, Solomon would. This is a strong probability and Absalom wouldn't have any of it. He would be king even if it destroyed the entire kingdom. He wanted to consolidate power in himself. That is what tyrants do. As we shall see, the results were tragic. We will consider that next when we examine his plan in detail. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.